0: NBC Arlington, good morning. How you doing? Good? All right. You got a copy of God's Word. Go ahead and head to the book of Mark. Uh, We'll be at uh, Mark 9. Uh, We're going to head from verse 30 on down to verse 37. So Mark 9, uh, 30 through 37. And so we recently jumped back after our Christmas series into a series we've been in for a while of the book of Mark And it's our desire to slowly uh, walk through uh, Mark verse by verse through the scriptures because it's our desire for you to gain a deeper understanding of this book and the book of Mark and what it says and how it fits together. But even more than that, we want you to gain a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship, and a deeper obedience to the one uh, whom the book of Mark points, namely Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to go ahead and read the text. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump in it, all right? And so Mark 9 Verse 30 through verse verse 37. Let's go. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum and When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a shout and put him in the midst of them, and and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one one such shout in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And this is the word of God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we come before you as a people who are incredibly needy. We need you. There's not a moment in our lives where we are not sustained by your power. If you ever removed your hand from our lives, we would cease to exist. You sustain us with your sovereign hand. Father, forgive us for not being aware of our need of you. And this morning, we especially need you. We need you to help us to understand your word. Help us not to be ambivalent to what we're hearing today. Help us to sit with rapt attention under your word. God, I as a weak person, I have no words to offer these people of any value. All I got is yours. So, Father, help us to stay in your text. Help us not to walk away unchanged. Help us to walk away uh, with a deeper resolve to obey you, to follow you, and to trust you. God, we love you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. All right, y'all, so uh, listen, years ago, um, I was like way back, I'm 38 now, man, it was when I was 20, about 18 years ago, I was trying to figure out if God had called me into uh, full-time vocational ministry, right? I had a desire uh, to do it, uh, but I really didn't know, and so I did what anyone would do. I said, you know what, I'm gonna gonna just stick my big toe in. I'm just gonna take an internship, uh, sign up for an internship at a church, we'll see how it goes, and hopefully God can use that uh, to confirm, and I got matched with a church church that was totally unlike the church I grew up in. And so I grew up in a church that was like in the hood. It was in Portsmouth, Virginia. Man, it was a black independent Baptist church. And this church uh, that I got partnered with, they say it was a large church, and let's say that it was a church filled with brothers and sisters of the lighter hue, right? And so, uh, so we're at this church, and I'm in charge of the high school ministry, right? And so uh, being in charge of the high school ministry, I'm in charge really of being their pastor for like three months because they were in between uh, high school pastors. And I heard once I got there from the students there uh, that they had a long-standing tradition that once a week, every single Wednesday, they would take surf days to the beach, right? Y'all look at me. Do I look like I surf? (laughs) But because I didn't want to kill a long-standing tradition... I went along with it. And I said, well, I'll admit it. I'm going to learn how to surf, right? And so I remember uh, being out there with the kids, man, the, uh, the high school students. They're teaching me how to surf. They're teaching me how to stand up on this plastic board and catch this current into shore. And I'm looking at them like, y'all know human beings are not supposed to stand on pieces of plastic <laughs> and float on, on, on water. But whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it with you guys. But in this whole process of learning, they also taught me about the kind of current that I did not want to take. Right? I wanted to take the kind of current, the kind of wave that took me towards the shore, but there was also a kind of current that if you got caught in it, it would take you away from the shore. Uh, this current, you guys know probably, it's, it's called a rip current. You see, a rip current is one of those currents uh, that pulls you away from the shoreline. You could be in shallow water, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you look up and you're yards away from where you intended to be. And I thought about that situation this week while I was studying this text because this text describes a kind of proverbial current that we all find ourselves in. That current is called ambition. Ambition, we're all swimming in it. If I had to give you simply a definition of ambition, ambition is this ambition is the drive to accomplish something great. Simple definition ambition is the drive to accomplish something great. And hear me today, ambition isn't a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing. All of us have ambition. Matter of fact, any incredible human achievement that we know of has been accomplished because of ambition. I think about man landing, forget, forget floating on waves, I think about man landing on the moon. That took ambition to get there. Uh, I think about the slave trade being ended. That took ambition to make that happen. Ambition by itself is not good or bad, but hear me this morning. What makes ambition good or bad? It's the same thing that makes a current good or bad. Ambition by itself is a good or bad. Ambition is determined good and bad by the direction that it takes you. By the direction that it takes you. And here's the thing. We all exist in the current of ambition, We all have drive. We all have desire. But here's the question I want you to consider this morning. What direction is your ambition taking you in? What direction is your ambition taking you in? Because hear me today. The ambition that Jesus desires for you and the ambition that our culture has for you Those two do not run in parallel directions. Those currents do not run concurrently with one another. So the question I have for you today is where is your ambition taking you? Y'all, when we come to follow Jesus, everything changes. Before, your ambition was about you. Your ambition was about your own pleasure. Your ambition was about you, 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 you. And when you come to Christ, like the Apostle Paul says, your aim, your ambition becomes to glorify Christ. I'm making my aim to please the Lord. So your ambition actually sets the course for your life. So the question you should ask is, do you have an ambition that glorifies God or do you have an ambition that pulls you away from that? Let me tell you another way that ambition is like a current. Not only is ambition determined good or bad by its direction, uh, ambition is just like a current because you tend to get caught up in it tend to get caught up in it eric what are you talking about we tend to catch the ambitions of the people around us without even noticing Uh, i read an article about that this week that that was it was an older article but it was new to me Uh, this article was titled cities and ambition and the author was trying to argue this that when you live in a certain place you tend to a a typical city certain cities tend to attract, attract people with certain ambitions But then also on the flip end, when you live in a certain place, you tend to be shaped by the ambitions of the city. So this article, he was actually naming specific cities in America, and you could probably guess the ambitions that that, that animate these places. He named New York City, and he said the direction of the current of ambition in New York City is money. He said Boston, knowledge. He said L.A., fame. And then he said, DC. What do you think DC is? Power. You see, y'all know? (laughs) DC is all about asserting yourself. It's all about status symbols. It's all about impressing people and being connected to impressive people who are in the know. And you may live here, you may say, hey, listen, my life is not about those things, at least not yet. But I do want you to do this. Think about your life and your ambitions and what you want. What do you want the most? What direction is your ambition taking you in? Is your ambition taking you along with the current of the spirit towards the purposes of Christ for your life? Or is your ambition moving your life along with the current of the culture away from him? Is your ambition godly? So today I hope that Mark 9 helps you critique your ambitions and the direction that you are headed. And my hope is that this sermon will help you get your bearings uh, straight. And see, uh, if you're headed in the right direction, I pray that this sermon will encourage you. And if you're not, I pray that this sermon will be something that God uses to cultivate a different kind of ambition, a godly ambition. So today, I'm gonna give you three landmarks so you can determine where you are, what direction you're headed in. And I say that because when I'm in a familiar place and I'm driving, I ain't paying attention to, uh, to street signs. I typically pay attention to landmarks. And if I pass certain landmarks, I know I'm headed in the right direction. And so I pray that this sermon uh, it's like that for you. I'm gonna show you a couple of landmarks and hopefully this shows you uh, the direction that your ambition is pointing you. And I, and I, and I pray um, that, uh, that we can take heed um, in this. And so look at verse 30. Verse 30, it says this. It says, they, namely Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. Let me give you some context. So, so before we get here, I'll, I'll explain that to you. In the book of Mark, very beginning, Jesus begins his ministry. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the gospel. Jesus' whole ministry, he's proving that he is king of the kingdom of God. And he does this um, by, by this. Anytime he interacts with a threat in his kingdom, what does he do? He proves that he is king over it. So anytime he interacts with people who are, who, who are bogged down by sickness and illness, he proves that he is king over sickness. He's proven that he's king over the body. And what does he do? He takes the illness out. He heals the sick. He raises, the, he heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He even interacts with people who experience death. And because Jesus is Lord over death, what does he do? He takes death out. He raises people back to life. And you see Jesus serving the masses, proving that he is the king, and announcing the kingdom of God. And as Jesus' ministry goes on, it begins to narrow a bit. Jesus moves from serving the masses towards simply teaching the 12 and focusing on them and preparing them for what he's about to do. And so normally, Jesus welcomes the masses. You know, he was in Galilee before the masses came to him. But here it says in verse 30 that he's passing through Galilee, and he doesn't even want people to know that he's there. Why is that? Look at verse 31. Verse 31, it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask See, Jesus is sharing with them what he's about to do. He's preparing his disciples. He's, he's preparing his disciples for his death. He calls himself the son of man in this text, and that's a reference to himself, Jesus. He's saying that he is God in human form, and as a man, that he will be delivered into the hands of men. And when you think about this fact, y'all, it is absolutely crazy. Because throughout this gospel, I just share this with you guys. Whenever Jesus the king encounters a threat in his kingdom, what does he do? He takes it out. When he encountered sickness, what did he do? He took it out. When he encountered death, what did he do? He took it out. And here, when he encounters the opposition of men, those who actually want to kill him, he does what? He doesn't take them out. He lets them do it. Why? Here's the response. Divine love. Divine love. Jesus has the power to take us out, and he should because we've all sinned against him. But instead of Jesus, the king, over men, crushing sinful men, you know what he does? He allows himself to be crushed by them. And this is absolutely incredible, and what you're hearing described is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God will give himself, Jesus himself, that he would give himself to die in our place for our sin, not one of us deserves to stand in His presence, and Jesus willingly lays His life down. He—none of us took it from Him. He laid His life down willingly, bearing our sin. He describes to His disciples that this would happen: that He would die and rise again, giving everyone the opportunity to trust in Him and to be citizens of the kingdom of God. It's given us the opportunity to be saved. You see, Jesus' ambition was to do the Father's will. And obedience to the Father led him to a cross for us. But here's the thing. This is what I love about the cross of Jesus Christ. The Father didn't simply lead Jesus to the suffering of the cross. He led Jesus through the suffering of the cross. Because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again, and now he sits. At the right hand of the throne of God. For Christ, the glory of the throne came on the other side of the suffering. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. And in this, I want to bring this on to your neighborhood. In this, Jesus gives us some help to determine the direction of our ambition. So guys, I'm going to bring it home to your hood. Think about all the things that you desperately want in life. Think about the thing that you've been praying for time and time and time again. Think about that thing that you're just begging God, 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 I want this. I want this. Think about the ambition, the things that you are working towards and the things that you are swept up in. My question is, are they godly? And here's He gives a landmark here to help you see if your ambition is godly. And I'll give it to you right now. The current of godly ambition will always lead you through suffering. Will always lead you through suffering. If you want to know if your ambition is a godly ambition, look up and tell me, do you see suffering in your life? I'm not telling you, I'm not saying that you see it every single day. But in this text, I think Jesus describes the fact that Jesus went to the cross saying, what does he do? What does he tell us as his followers? He calls us to bear one calls us to bear the cross. And hear me today, guys. If you're new to Christianity, I, wanna, uh, I, I do want to uh, not alarm you guys. We're not masochists. We're not out here looking for suffering, right? I don't like suffering. I don't know anybody who, who does. We're not the people who run towards suffering. But Jesus always knows more than we do. And he knew. He knows that the path to following God, God's will, the path to future glory, will always meet resistance. And that resistance will always entail suffering. I'm going to bring it even more deeply home to you today. Y'all, we all got different ambitions, different walks of life, different personalities, different drives, different things that we want to do with our lives. Here's a question that I want you to consider. How How does obedience to Jesus alter your ambitions? How does obedience to Jesus alter your ambition? Listen, guys, the things that we want, our drive and our desire, it should not look, dif- it should not look the same as somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ and doesn't confess it. Right. So I'll give you some specifics, man. If, man, if you can't say amen, just say ouch. <laughs> um, for our careers, there may be hits that we take because we have a deeper set of priorities than climbing the corporate ladder. Man, we got things that we don't do, and we got time limits that we have that other people might not have, and we have other priorities that other people don't, that might not have. Our careers are are not our lives. Jesus is our life. Jesus alters our ambition. Our careers actually might suffer for the sake of obedience. Here's another. For our romantic relationships, our ambition is not to be married at all costs. Man, it breaks my heart how many people that I've seen over the years compromise in the area of romantic relationships, partnering with themselves with people that Jesus has clearly said that you don't belong with. And in that moment, we need to understand something, that Jesus alters our ambition. Our dreams of romantic love might suffer for the sake of obedience. Y'all don't know what it is for you, but here's the thing. As followers of Jesus Christ, we make it our aim to please the Lord. Make it our aim to please him. And obedience to Jesus, I want to prepare you guys. I want to prepare you. As a good pastor, I'm trying to do this. Obedience to Jesus Christ will always involve a a type of suffering. It's always going to involve a type of suffering. And here's my question for you. Are you willing to experience that? Jesus himself said that on account, on the account of following him, we're going to have trouble. On account of following him, we're going to experience some suffering. I'm not saying you go looking for it. I feel like some Christians out here, y'all just go out looking for suffering. But if you follow Jesus, listen, it's going to find you. But hear this today. I don't want to down you. But here's the thing. Just like there was joy on the other side of Jesus' suffering, here's the encouragement today. There's joy on the other side of yours. It really is. Hear me today. You will never regret what you gave up to following Jesus. You will never regret it. Man, I love this text, man. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite texts in the Bible is Matthew 19. I know as a pastor, you're supposed to say all of it is your favorite, but, you know, for the sake of this, I'm telling y'all, this is my favorite, right? And so uh, Matthew 19, I love this text, man, because uh, Jesus, as he does, it's often times Jesus started talking crazy just to thin the crowd a little bit, right? Like people would come and get fed by him and get healed by him, and all of a sudden, Jesus start talk, talking crazy, and people would say, I don't know about following you. So Matthew 19, that happens, right? And then Peter looks up, and Peter says, hold on, man, we left everything to follow you. And I love what, Peter, what, what Jesus says in response to him. Verse 29 of Matthew 19, he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, let's keep filling that in, or careers, or the prospect of romantic love, or anything else that you can fill in there, anything that you've left for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I think it says in verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I love that text because that text actually mirrors Mark 9. Mark nine thirty-five. he talks about the first being last and the last first. And it, it, it helps you understand this, that obedience sometimes is going to make you feel like you're coming in last. I know it. Some of, you t- some of you guys, you break over your phone, you look at social media, and you look at the person who got the promotion, and you think, man, I could have got that if I made some compromises. You'd open up your social media, you see your friend from high school showing off her bling, saying, listen, I'm engaged, right? And you look at that, and you're like, yo, that could be me if I cut corners. You look at all these other circumstances, and you feel like I could be ahead by the worldly standards if I simply left aside obedience to Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you with something today. Hold on. Your obedience will be rewarded. Glory is coming. Y'all, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to be a GSA. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. But I know it's hard to be a GS-8 where well, you could be a GS-12 if you made compromises. <laughs> I know it's hard when you're single and you couldn't be married. I know it's hard when you are suffering for speaking up when you could have just kept your mouth shut. But here's hope. Listen, the suffering is only for a little while. The suffering is only for a little while. I know it feels long, but hold on. My other favorite text of the Bible is 1 Peter 5.10. It says this. It says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Y'all, the suffering is short. The glory is eternal. Hold on. Hold on. Y'all, if you are experiencing suffering for following Jesus, that should not be an indication to turn or go around the other way, you're headed in the right direction. Here's the next point I want to give you. I probably, that first point was long, but uh, I'll hustle up. Here's another thing I'm going to give you. Uh, the current of godly ambition will lead you to suffering. The current of God bishop will also lead you to serve people in Jesus' name. Also leads you to serve people in Jesus' name. It's interesting. Jesus says all this stuff about his death, burial, and resurrection, and the disciples don't get it. They don't get it, right? Man, this reminds me of a time in which I was in seminary. I don't know if y'all know Nate Crew. He's the pastor over at City Light Church. Uh, I was in seminary class with his brother. We was in Greek three together. And uh, I remember uh, a, a, a time period, and, and I'm sharing this because of this. Because this isn't the first time uh, that that, uh, Jesus talked about his death, burial, and resurrection to his disciples. Chapter earlier, Mark 8, Jesus says the same exact thing. Peter says, no, that's not happening. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, depart from me, Satan. Calls Peter Satan, right? So we come to this text. Jesus says the same thing, and it says that uh, that nobody understood, and nobody asked questions. (laughs) I get the feeling. Man, we was in Greek 3 one day, and the professor asked for questions, man. We had been through a few semesters of Greek. We were able to uh, read a little bit of the New Testament, and some guy asked a question about the pronunciation of a certain phrase. The professor asked the guy to read the phrase. The guy reads it. The professor begins to laugh while he's reading it, and straight up says, you're in Greek now. You should be able to say that. Then he turns to the class again and says, does anybody else have any questions? I looked to Nate, I said, I ain't got no questions. You got questions? (laughs) He said, no, I ain't got no questions, right? I did, but I was not asking. And I feel like the disciples felt like that, felt a little bit like that here. But I think their lack of understanding is actually tied to what's happening in verse 33. Look at verse 33. It says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Every day, y'all, it's easy to look at the disciples and to say, yo, who does that? Who sits around and argues with other people about how great they are? Not, exact, not even how great they are, but they're greater than the people that they're arguing with. They're arguing about it. Now, you know, when you argue, what you're doing is you're presenting your case so that the people who are hearing your argument will agree with you. So pretty much they're arguing about their own uh, greatness and they're expecting the people who are arguing with them to say, you know what, I'm done, you good, you the the GOAT, right, you got it. We don't do that. Yeah, we do. Y'all, we may have different measuring sticks, but for all of us, man, we stand on the platforms of our personalities, our giftings, our careers, who we married, our hobbies, and we use all of these things as props to elevate ourselves above each other. We all tend to try to determine how great we are by comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. And here's the thing, without reference to God, that's where you're stuck. Without reference to God, all we try to do with our lives is try to get the approval that our heart needs from other people, and it's never enough. It's never enough. Y'all, you know, I've used this example a a while ago. If you're new, you're hearing this for the first time, but if you've been around, you've heard this for a while. But I think it's powerful, so I keep using it. Um, Man, there is an um, entertainer named Madonna, right? Y'all know who Madonna is, right? Yeah, y'all young GZ people, I don't even know who y'all, who y'all, uh, who, who y'all stars are. I was just making sure. Um, but Madonna said something that was incredibly self-aware in an interview that perfectly captures what we're talking about today. When I think about Madonna, she's achieved more probably than anybody else in this room has. Like, millions of people have bought her albums, and gone through her concerts. Many uh, millions of people have declared how great, Madonna, you, is, you are as an entertainer, um, and all of that. And yet, she said this, and I put this quote on the screen. In an interview, she said, uh, I have an iron will, and all my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and become mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Y- y- y'all see what she's saying here? She's saying no matter how much people have affirmed her greatness is not enough, she's still arguing for her own greatness. And hear me today, that's so many of us. So many of us, our whole lives have been about arguing for our own greatness, the careers that we choose, the people that we married, looking at our personalities and our relationships, our taste and our status. Instagram it is pretty much the story of us trying to prove online how great we are. We're trying to achieve, because if we do, we feel like we'll finally get the verdict of greatness that our hearts are longing for, and that's not the case. Let me ask you a question that my mom always asked me. I was an argumentative child. I was always picking a fight, and my mom used to say this to me all the time. She used to say, are you tired of arguing all the time, boy? She used to say that to me, and I'm saying that to you. Are you tired of arguing all the time? Are you tired of arguing for your own greatness? It's freedom and not having to be great in the eyes of other people. And that freedom is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the gospel, we've realized that all of our arguments for greatness will never give us the approval that our hearts are looking for. Blaise Pascal, French philosopher, he says that we all have a God-sized hole in our hearts that can only be filled with God. Surely it's the case. Uh, Theologian Augustine, early church theologian and philosopher from Africa, he said this line that is true. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. He's right. Our search for greatness will always come up short until we believe in the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus gives us the greatness that our hearts have been searching for in the mouths of other people. In the gospel, this is what happens. He gives us his greatness, the the, the, the righteousness that we've been longing for. Jesus takes our sin and our shame, and we receive his greatness. And when God looks at you, he says you're great, not because you achieved a thing, but because his greatness, Jesus' greatness, was applied to you. In other words, in the gospel, you you don't have to achieve greatness anymore. In the gospel, you're not great. But guess what? You have the opportunity to receive greatness. In other words, you don't achieve greatness, you receive greatness in Christ. You receive greatness in Christ. In Christ, the argument is over. You don't got to argue for your own greatness no more. You can have peace. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You don't got to work to argue your greatness anymore. He declared you great in the gospel. And look at the result of that. Look at verse 35. He, and he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and a servant of God all. So Jesus pretty much says, listen, y'all, stop arguing. Start serving people. And the only way that you're able to stop arguing for your own greatness and begin serving other people is when you don't need them to declare you're great anymore. When you have been affirmed by the approval of the, of the God of the universe, you are free not to always try to elevate yourself above people, you're not free to stoop low in order to serve them. So my question for you today is this. Do you serve people? You know that your ambition is taking you in the right direction when your ambition leads you to serve people. And I'm not just saying the people that, like, like D.C. culture. I'm not saying the people that you serve in order for them to serve you. I man, I'm not talking about the kinds of people that you like. You, I just want to serve you because I just want to break into whatever group you're in. I just want to serve you because you have something about you that can affirm my own greatness. I'm talking about the people in your life that, that, that in your heart of hearts, you would say, man, you're probably the least, you, you're probably the least lucky person that I will ever find myself serving. Do you serve people? Do you serve the body of Christ? Man, this third point actually shows us a bit more about that one. So the current of godly ambition um, calls us uh, uh, or moves us towards serving people. But here's my last point. The current of godly ambition will also also lead you to receive people in Jesus' name. I think this verse actually describes what kind of people that we begin to receive. Look at verse 36. And he, Jesus, took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now here's the thing: when Jesus talks about receiving children in this text, um, he's not talking about literal children. And so I've heard people use this text as kind of like proof that churches should have children's ministry. I think churches should have children's ministry, but that's not what this uh, text is focused on. In this verse, Jesus is using children as a real life uh, metaphor for something. You see, in ancient Judaism. Their view of children was much different than ours. You see, for our, um, uh, for our generation, especially those who don't have children, right, we tend to view children as innocent, and we shouldn't tend to feel, uh, um, view ju- uh, uh, children as well-behaved and all of that, and then you have them, right, and then that's not the case no more, right? Um, but when um, ancient Jews thought about kids, they didn't think about them as perpetually cute and innocent. If there's one word that I describe the view of ancient Jews of kids, it was they viewed kids as insignificant, that kids were better seen and not heard. Their opinions didn't matter all that much. You see, associating with kids did not improve your reputation. They were pretty low rank. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, listen, when I get a hold of your life, you stop using me to clamor to the top of, of the social rankings. You don't try to get to the top. You don't clamor to the top of the social ladder. You start to find your community at the bottom. How do you know that your ambition is godly? Where godly ambition will always lead you to associate with people that you would never imagine associating with. When you think about it, that's what the church is. The church is a place where Jesus has accepted a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of people that we would never accept. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus accepted the rich and the poor. He accepted the people on the left and the right. He accepted the Jews and the non-Jews, the smart and the not-so-smart, the slave and the free, the introvert and the extrovert. Any of those people were welcome into the community of Jesus when they placed their faith and trust in Jesus. But here's the issue. Jesus accepts a much wider demographic than we tend to accept. If we're honest with ourselves, deep down we'll say, Even to those people who are different, I'm cool with being in the same room with you on a Sunday morning. I might even go on a mission trip with you if you stay over there and I stay over here. But the people that I let in, the people that I I fulfill the one another's with, um, the people that I choose to be a part of my life, these need to be people that I naturally like. I want those people to make me look good. And this verse says no. When you do that, you're telling God that your idea of community is better than his. You're acting as if the community of the church is something that you create rather than something that you receive. To say it differently, you're acting, I'll give you an example here. You're acting as if the community of the church is a tailor-made suit rather than a hand-me-down. I've given y'all this uh, analogy before, man. When I got married, uh, I went to, um, uh, where'd I go, JCPenney, and I bought a suit, right, for my wedding. We was broke. We were college. I ain't had money to rent a tux. And I went to JCPenney because I knew that JCPenney had a return policy at the time. I think I, I, think I changed that. Um, and so the return policy was anytime, any place, any condition. Yo, uh, anytime, anyplace, any condition, right? Like, if you return this suit within two weeks, you can get your money back. So I got a suit off the rack, and I said, hey, listen, I got a weird body type. Hear me. I'm actually going to take your suit. I'm going to go. I'm going to get it tailored. I'm going to go dance to my wedding. I'm going to go on my honeymoon. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to hand you this suit. You mean to tell me you're going to take it back? And he said, yeah, that's the policy. I said, I'll see you in two weeks. (laughs) And so that's what I did. I went to the tailor, and the reason I got to go to the tailor is because I got a weird body type right? Really short, really long arms, that's me. And when I went to the tailor, uh, the tailor went to work. He started marking out places that he needed to cut off. He started uh, marking out places where he needed to lengthen, He needed the length of the arms, he needed to uh, 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 shorten the pants. And then I walked away with this perfect suit that was suited to my own body type. And when I think about community at the church, I think sometimes we feel like it's my experience buying a suit what we tend to do is we tend to customize our community based off of our weird body types. We tend to receive the kinds of people in our lives that fit us, that fit our personalities, that fit our ambitions, that fit the things that we love. And so we think that, hey, I have these preferences, I have this personality, I have this kind of interest, and I'll only receive the people into my life that fit me. And then we cut off the people that don't fit. But hear me today, the church is less like a tailored suit, more like a hand-me-down suit. You see, a hand-me-down suit is something that you receive. Somebody gives it to you. A hand-me-down suit is something that might not fit right away. A hand-me-down suit is something that may be a little bit frayed and a little bit rough around the edges because it's been used. And hear me today. God is calling us to love the kind of community that he's handed to us. The The people that we are tempted to ignore. The kind of community that you didn't ask for in your church group. Why? Because God is using the unlikely hand-me-down community called the church to bring himself glory. You see, tailored communities, and I'll get off this in a second, but tailored communities call attention to themselves. What do you mean? When you see a kind of tailored community where everybody just fits together, where everybody is like young, or everybody is old, or everybody is on the left, or everybody is on the right, or everybody is a certain racial demographic, when that kind of community exists and people peer into it, they can already deduce that you all fit together for a reason outside of Jesus Christ. But hear me today, the hand-me-down community brings glory to God. Because when the world peers in and, they, and the world sees a community where people on the left and the right, people who are, uh, uh, who, who are uh, black and white and everything in between, old and young, when they see all of these people existed together in otherworldly love, they'll scratch their heads and they'll say, I don't get how y'all pull that off. That, 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 whatever y'all got on, I don't know, but that seems to work. And that gives us the platform to declare to them what makes it work. is the fact that Christ holds us together. Christ holds us together. It's not easy. We need to receive the kind of community um, that God has given us by being willing to receive the kind of community that we're tempted to reject because Christ receives them. And one quick analogy that may help you is this. It's wild that um, God rejects the kind of, God receives the kind of people that we're tempted to reject. And why is that? Here's an analogy for you. It confused me until I thought about this analogy. Uh, Say after service you came up to me and you're like, Eric, I like you. I want to be your friend. Um, But your wife can't stand her. Your wife, she gets on my nerves. Your wife, I mean, if you know my wife, man. Man, she's great. Yo. I, hopefully nobody <laughs> doesn't like her. But, um, but you say, Eric, man, I would love to be in a relationship with you, man. But your wife, let's cut her out. What do you think I'm going to say to you? No. <laughs> I'm going to say, nah. Because listen, we're our package deal. Listen, if you receive me, you receive her. If you reject me, you reject her. And hear me today. Jesus also has a bride, and his bride is called the church. And the church is a place made up with people across the spectrum, a much wider spectrum than actually fits you and your personality type. And what God has called us to do is to receive his bride, because when we receive his bride, we receive who? We receive him. This is what it's all about. Listen, how do you know if your direction is taking you in the right direction? You know, because you begin loving the kinds of people that before you didn't love. You tend to be in a community with the kind of people that you never saw yourself being in community with. Ben, you can go ahead and come back up. And my prayer today is as we close is this, is that you will not merely coast along with the ambitions of our culture, but that God will cultivate a godly ambition in you. The question you might have today is this, Eric, listen, I sense that like you named all these landmarks landmark of suffering to see if I'm on the right direction or the landmark of serving other people or the landmark of being in community with people that don't like they aren't like me I don't see any of these landmarks as I pursue the themes that I'm pursuing in life how do I actually turn around and go to the right direction how do I cultivate a godly ambition here's the thing you can't break out of the rip current of our culture by yourself you need to be rescued you need to be rescued This last week, there was a story in the news a couple weeks ago about the ex-football player Peyton Hillis. If you guys know who this guy is, he played a couple of years ago, running back for the um, uh, Cleveland Browns, retired, fell completely away from uh, the limelight until a couple of weeks ago. Because a couple of weeks ago, he was at the beach like I was all those many years ago. And instead of like me catching a wave towards the beach, he had some kids in the water. And those kids were caught up in a riptide. They were caught up in a wave that would take them away from where they needed to be. And so Peyton Hill, it's like any good dad, he jumped into the waves and attempted to save his kids. He was successful, he saved his kids, but it was touch and go whether or not he would survive. Uh, he was in the hospital in a few days and, uh, and, 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 and praise God that he's actually uh, doing better now And that he sacrificed himself in order to save his kids. Even today, you are, powerful, you are powerless to save yourself from the riptide co- rip of our culture. This riptide that we all tend to be caught in. This riptide of sin that we were born into. We are so easily caught up in poor ambitions. The ambition to make work our God. The ambition to make romantic love our God. The ambition, all these ambitions that you can name. We're so easily caught up in those things. And, and, and the question of our own greatness and we don't realize that though that that ambition has the means to take us away from God for now and for all eternity. Well, praise God, we got a Savior who jumped in to save us. At great cost to himself, he pursued us. He rescued us. He brought us to himself at the sacrifice of his life. So I want to encourage you guys to trust in Jesus today, to lay down your poor ambitions and to trust in him to give you a godly one. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we love you. and God, we just pray that we will be a people who make it our aim to please you. We can't drum up that kind of ambition. That ambition only comes by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, God, I pray that we will yield ourselves to you. I pray that we will understand, we will understand that we are on a fool's race, trying to get the approval that our hearts are desperately, uh, our hearts desperately need in the eyes and mouths of other people. Help us to understand that what our hearts desperately need, the joy that our souls desperately crave, only comes from you. So, Father, will you help us? You give us pure and holy passions. Give us a holy ambition. Help us to understand that greatness is not seen in raising ourselves above people and arguing for our own greatness. Greatness is seen in service. Help us to be servants like you, Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Help us. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.